Good morning. How do I sound? Is this good, good uh, volume? <laughs> it's good to be with you all. Uh, my name is Matt Butin, and uh, my wife and I have actually been attending Newcom for the last seven years. Uh, I'm a member here, have a lot of investment in this community, uh, love this community so much. And even as we were worshiping, um, just found myself thinking about how uh, important this series is, um, how formation, uh, it's just been such an important metaphor in my own life. Uh, so when I actually actually uh, received the invitation to speak, I kind of got the email and I was like, I don't know if I can do this, I'm busy, all kinds of excuses, right? Uh, but when I saw the title <laughs> of this thing, I could not refuse. I literally looked at my wife and I was like, there is no saying no to this one. I am sorry. Like, I have to, I have to do this one. Uh, because for me, formation has been such an important metaphor in my life of what God does in us. The ways that God shapes us, as scripture says, as a potter shapes clay. And it's a continual process. We're going to continue to get into that. Um, but it's just a gift to be with you. I'm glad to be in this space right now to be able to share some of the things that I've been reflecting on over the last really few years. Um, but let's do a bit of a recap about this series. Uh, we started a few weeks ago. Emily kicked us off with Hagar's wilderness journey in Genesis and her encounter of God, in, of God in the wilderness as one, as God who sees us fully and completely and the ways that that transformed Hagar. And then the next week we had Anthony Hiron preach to us from 1 Kings 19. And Anthony shared a little bit about his own mental health journey and the intersections of mental health and the healing that God can bring in the wilderness. Last week, we had Tim White, our wonderful drummer, pastor, a man who's very gifted, um, who spoke about the wilderness of self from Exodus, uh, Moses' journey with wilderness. When we choose to make wilderness our home, maybe wrongfully, and we let the wilderness define us rather than uh, who God has made us to be, the Imago Dei inside of us. But today, I want to take a little bit of a turn. So if you've noticed, the last three weeks have really been individual kind of approaches, individuals who have been formed in the wilderness. And this week, I actually want to shift towards a collective transformation in the wilderness. Uh, we're going to be actually reading out of the book of Ezekiel, which is a little bit of a wonky text. I don't know, not many people preach out of Ezekiel. I think I've only heard like two messages from Ezekiel in my whole life, and I grew up in the church. Uh, so, so I'm excited to bring you this message today from Ezekiel, because it's actually, it has formed me during this time. There's even some of my students here, they know I kind of rant about Ezekiel every now and again. Because <laughs> this is such a powerful text, especially when you understand the, t the context of where it's coming from. Um, so the main idea that I'm going to be sharing with us today is that the wilderness of exile heals us of empire. The wilderness of exile heals us of empire. And essentially the way that this happens is through 
the destruction of the temple. This is a pretty loaded phrase. Um, there's a lot to the terminology that I'm using here. So I want to I wanna unpack it a bit for us before we actually dive in. So when I, when I say empire, what I'm going to mean today is essentially a mentality and a form of power that prioritizes one people group's domination over as many other people groups as possible. So when, I'm, when I say empire, I, I hope you see a little bit of the difference. I don't mean a specific empire. I mean the power that is behind what creates empires. And it could be in anyone. It could be any group of people. It can colonize us in ways that we didn't want it to. It can be really sneaky in the ways that it creeps in. Another way of thinking about empire, uh, Bell Hooks actually talks about a concept of dominator culture. Dominator culture may be another way of thinking about this idea of empire. The second term is exile. Uh, so I said the wilderness of exile heals us of empire. Exile, when I say exile, what I mean today in this context is an experience of undesired displacement and disorientation that causes those in exile to re-examine their identity and behavior. Not an easy process. <laughs> the third term is temple. And when I say temple, I'm actually talking really deeply from the Old Testament context of the temple. Uh, so in the Old Testament scriptures, the, the temple was the structures of worship, economics, politics, law, ethics, even the center of society that dictated the ways that people related to other people and the ways that people related to God. Essentially, temple was the center of society. Maybe even, uh, maybe it's a little too living. <laughs> it was kind of mechanistic at times. But kind of the heartbeat of that culture in that time. Before we dive in, though, to the actual text, I want to pray for us. Um, so would you, would you pray with me? I'm going to pray from Psalm 139. Search us, O God. And know our hearts. Try us. And know our thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in us. And lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. So the context of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is actually written from the perspective of a prophet. Um, it's written from the perspective of a man who was going to be a priest. Okay, so his whole life he had kind of grown up in the ranks of becoming a priest. Um, but something happened in his life that was tremendously disorienting. And the book of Ezekiel starts actually on Ezekiel's 30th birthday. Most scholars believe that it's actually his age when it says in the 30th year. Uh, it's in his 30th year. It's on his 30th birthday. He's sitting in a refugee camp because he and a bunch of exiles have been carried into Babylon by the empire. They've been, he's, he's sitting on the edge of a, maybe 
they think it was probably an irrigation canal, the Chabar Canal. I think I have maybe a map somewhere up here. Um, Right in the middle here, you can see this question mark, Chabar Canal. (laughs) Um, They're not sure exactly where it is, but it might have actually been on the outskirts of Babylon. And this is tracing the route of the exiles. But this is the year, the 30th year, is the year that Ezekiel would have been installed as a priest. His own vocation has been robbed of him. His hopes have been dashed. What He's essentially asking this question, what will we, God's people, do now that we're being carried off into exile? And to give a little more context, I, I want to dive back into some of the Old Testament. And, and some of the narrative of the Old Testament can be pretty confusing because the Old Testament is not written chronologically. Um, so if you just read the, the Bible front to back, it can be very uh, wonky. <laughs> it can be disorienting to try to figure out the whole story. But I want to do some of that work for us a bit today and, and do that so that we understand the real context of what's behind this experience of exile. Um, so, to begin, um, if we could put that history of Old Testament, thank you. Uh, Israel's history, roots, as Emily led us through in the first week, it begins with regular wilderness experiences. Okay? So, often in Genesis and throughout parts of Exodus, wilderness is just regular for the people of God. For those who follow God, wilderness is just part of the equation. Right? They have one particularly difficult experience in the wilderness for 40 years after they've been liberated from a particularly heinous power, namely the empire of Egypt, where the people of Egypt, or people of Israel, the Hebrews, have been enslaved. And eventually they end up in the wilderness and God liberates them and uses the wilderness to kind of help them unlearn who they had become and to relearn who God had made them to be. However, at the end of that experience, there's some interesting thinking that comes. And this is a bit of my own interpretation, so I'm going to name my own bias here. However, my belief is that at that point, Israel started taking a a theology. They remembered some of the possibilities, some of the things that Egypt had given them, some of the prosperity, the success, the safety, even though they were enslaved, they remembered this, and they said, "Ah, if we had our own land, (laughs) if we, um, if we just had a space to settle down, build houses, oh, how good that would be, and I'm tremendously empathetic towards that, it makes a ton of sense, I mean, 40 years, that's, they say it's multiple, uh, a whole generation, at least, of being in the wilderness, so this is intense, and I don't mean to, um, Uh, be unsympathetic. However, they decide to make the choice, the really theological choice, to say God is giving us the land that we will call the promised land, and we are able to essentially wipe out the inhabitants that are in that land. We'll commit mass genocide, and we'll believe that it's from God's command. Now, there's a very hairy (laughs) theological discussion here, but there's a lot that goes on, especially in these colonization books, okay? Um, But that's essentially the second stage of Israel's relationship with empire, is they start building their own empire by by receiving or taking a land and then dividing it up amongst themselves, essentially taking out the Canaanites. 
And then they move into this stage of attempted empire, where they start becoming great or attempting to become great. They actually end up being still remaining pretty small uh, despite their efforts. I think that's because God loves small things. <laughs> um, but ultimately, there's a, there's a, uh, I've, I've put some texts that are particularly relevant down here just for your own uh, reference. But ultimately, there's a text that's especially important from 2 Samuel 7, where essentially there's peace. King David receives, as it says, peace on all sides from God is what he says, is what he's, how he's processing this. And he settles down, he's in his, essentially a mansion, and he says, I bet, I bet God would want that too. I bet God would want this comfort too. Why is God still hanging out in a tent? That was wilderness. And we've been trying to get rid of the wilderness this entire time. We've been trying to build ourselves up and create some stability, create some control, create some prosperity. And I'm not saying all those things are always bad. However, when we seek those things before God, we end up teaming up with the empire and not with God. And this is exactly what Israel is doing in these attempted empire books. And you start to see it. Uh, God essentially responds to uh, David's request and says, I've never asked for a house. <laughs> you don't need to build me a house. I'm cool with a tent. Uh, as Shane Claiborne puts it, I love camping. God loves camping. <laughs> um, <laughs> so God's cool with that, right? But ultimately God says, okay, whatever, your son can, can build me a temple. But as long, and there's even some warnings down in 2 Chronicles 17, 7, 19 through 22. God says, if you end up going another way, if you don't continue to see the fullness of who I am and the fullness of who you are, I'm going to have to carry you into exile. That's what that text says. All these Deuteronomy texts, they allude to that same idea that God will have to send them into exile if they turn another way, get in bed with empire, essentially. So that leads to a devolution. King after king who's corrupt, vying for power, division in the empire, and eventually the need for healing. That's how we end up in exile. That's how this first wave of exiles ends up in Babylon. And Ezekiel is among them. Okay, wow, thank you for that long introduction <laughs> to Ezekiel. Um, but hopefully that gives us a sense of where we're at in the biblical narrative. And maybe it even ties together some of the, the um, maybe difficult parts of the Bible for you. Um, we're, today we're in Ezekiel 11. Um, and the book of Ezekiel begins with this glorious vision of God's presence in the temple. Ezekiel is on the Chabar Canal, as I said, and he, he has this vision on his 30th birthday in the midst of his depression, in the midst of his loss, in the midst of adjusting to a new society. And he has this vision of the glory of God actually coming out of the temple. There's some wheels, there's a bunch of creatures, a throne, you should read it, it's pretty wild. Um, but God essentially charges Ezekiel after this vision to call out Israel's idolatry and Israel's injustice. Over and over and over again. And he does sign after sign. He is a total weirdo, y'all. I mean, like he's laying on his side. He's building sandcastles. I mean, it's, it's a whole thing. You need to read it. You know, probably know Ezekiel bread. That's literally from a verse in the Bible. He makes bread that's like prophetic bread. <laughs> so he's a weirdo. Read it. Um, 
We're going to go further into this, though, into Ezekiel 11. Okay. And Ezekiel 11, 14 through 25, I'm going to be reading from the NLT translation here. Um, it just expounds really well on some of the things that are going on in this text. So if you could go with me to Ezekiel 11, 14 through 25, if you have your Bibles, or it'll be right up here on the screen. Then this message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, the people still left in Jerusalem are talking about you and your relatives and all the people of Israel who are in exile. Side note, just sidebar here. Essentially what's happening is that there are people who are still in Jerusalem, in Israel, who, are, who they didn't get exiled yet, and they're talking about the ones who did get exiled. Okay, just to be clear here. Let's keep going. They're saying those people, those people, those exiles are far away from the Lord. So now he has given their land to us. Therefore, tell the exiles, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Although I have scattered you in the countries of the world, I will be a sanctuary to you during your time in exile. I, the sovereign Lord, will gather you back from the nations where you've been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel once again. When the people return to their homeland, they will remove every trace of their vile images and detestable idols, and I will give them singleness of heart and put a new spirit within them. I'll take away their stony, stubborn heart, and I'll give them a tender, responsive heart. So they'll obey my decrees and regulations. Then they will truly be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those who long for vile images and detestable idols, I'll repay them fully for their sins. I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken. And then the vision picks up again. This is actually the end of the vision here, okay? So it says, then the cherubim, some of these creatures I mentioned, lifted their wings and rose into the air with their wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered above them. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the city and stopped above the mountain to the east. Afterward, the Spirit of God carried me back again to Babylonia, to the people in exile there, and so ended the vision of my visit to Jerusalem. And I told the exiles everything the Lord had shown me. This is the word of the Lord. I want to begin here in this text with the blind pride of empire that has poisoned the Israelites in this context. And you see it in the mentality of those who are not in exile yet. There's this view that the Jews who are not in exile had of those who were, okay? They, they essentially are viewing those who are in exile as the unrighteous ones. You see it in the statement up here, these people are far away from the Lord. They're essentially saying righteousness is here, not over there. It's located in a geographic place. <laughs> it's this view that we have the truth. We have the promises. Sung Chan Ra, who I believe has actually spoken here, uh, he calls this exceptionalism. 
that I get to be the exception to all the rules because God's on my side. Whew. <laughs> because of this, I want to I reframe these mentalities that we're kind of seeing in the text. Um, uh, I want to talk about bounded set faith and centered set faith. So this idea of bounded set faith is very clear. It's actually a very easy way of setting up a religion, setting up a social group even. Um, it's, it, it establishes clear boundaries of who is in and who is out. And it does that through regulating or, or even putting people within the boundaries here that have certain behaviors, certain attitudes, certain beliefs, certain identity markers. Those are the people who get to be in. And if you don't have those things or don't do those things, don't embody those things, you're out. It's actually a very simple way of setting up a social structure. And that's what you see in this group of, of people in Israel who's looking at the exiles and saying, ah, they must, God must have done this because of their unrighteousness. They're saying they're, they're far off from the Lord. We've got the truth. We've got the promises. We've got the temple. The temple has not yet fallen. Joke's on them because eventually Ezekiel sees there's an, oh, an announcer, announce, announcer, what's the, messenger, <laughs> who comes and says, uh, says essentially the temple has fallen, Jerusalem has been destroyed, Ex more exiles are coming. <laughs> so ultimately, the bounded set folks in our text, it doesn't really end up working out. I want to frame for us a different possible way of viewing faith. And it's what's called centered set here. In a centered set version of faith, God is essentially the center who gives us meaning and purpose and value in life. He, God, God is someone who um, uh, directs our identity, created us with uh, deep meaning um, and, and value. And, and, um, and it, faith isn't so much about how close you are to God. It's about your orientation to God. So if we just look at this image, you see a few arrows these arrows are, are kind of demonstrating the orientation that maybe some of these individuals have towards God. And there are some who are kind of close to God, but they're not quite oriented toward God. There are others who are far away from God who are actually oriented toward God. You can embody faith in this mentality no matter where you are, right? No matter who you are. It's not about identity. It's not about your behaviors, it's not about your beliefs, maybe even. It's just about are you oriented toward God, okay? And we let God understand that. We let God define that for us. Ezekiel is essentially saying to the, to the folks back in Jerusalem, you got the wrong idea. <laughs> this is not the way that God's presence functions. This is not the way that righteousness even functions. And eventually Jerusalem and the temple, as I said, do fall. But this attempt to become an empire that Israel has kind of got in its uh, DNA now, um, it causes a harmful understanding of wilderness for them. The people and the land end up denigrated, dehumanized. We see this in our own history in the United States. Um, Michko Bonkai, a pastor and scholar, frames the relationship between wilderness and empire as follows. The concept of wilderness is one rooted in colonialism. 
wherein one understands the relationship between land and people as one where the land is either unknown and dangerous or known only through conquest and exploitation. This idea of wilderness often erases the ways in which indigenous people stewarded the land prior to colonization and still do. And also perpetuates the idea that land that has not been colonized is simply empty, wild land for the taking, rather than a place of history, relationship, and belonging for indigenous peoples. A good friend of mine, uh, Trisha Ivanoff, is a, yeah, that's pretty intense. Sorry, <laughs> maybe we need to pause for a sec. Hmm. But a good friend of mine, Trisha Ivanoff, is, a, is actually native Alaskan. She's from the Inupiat tribe. I have the pleasure of working with her. She's one of my best friends. Um, and a few years into our seminary studies together, we were talking about the impact of colonization on United States Christianity. And Trisha said something that convinced me that there are some who know the true power of wilderness, and there are others, like myself, who just go on vacation to pictured rocks. Okay? <laughs> Trisha said to me, Matt, I can't escape the ongoing legacy of colonization. It's not just the residential boarding schools that my ancestors were put in. It's not the diabetes that continues. It's not the, just the alcoholism that colonizers gave to us that remind me of them. Even looking at sidewalks and roads reminds me of the colonizers, reminds me that this country was made to erase me. That's what she said to me. That mentality we need to be healed from. We need to be healed from that, what the empire does to us. And I, I believe that in verses 18 through 21, really even 16 through 21 of this text, we see some of the healing power of exile. There is healing power in exile for those who end up partnered with the empire. The machine of empire is going to be replaced by relationships, communities, and love is essentially what Ezekiel is saying in this set of verses. God is saying to people, if I, I'll just read some of these statements out to you, I'll be a sanctuary to you during your time in exile. You'll remove every trace of idols. You'll have singleness of heart. And keep in mind, this is a collective you all will have singleness of heart. You'll all together have a new spirit within you. I'll take away your stony heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. That's some of the healing that can come. But claiming and asserting domination is not the way that healing comes. As I put up here, empire is not the way the world is transformed. It's the way the world is deformed. So if we're talking about being formed in the wilderness, this is not, uh, uh, empire is about deformation, not transformation. But humility then is the answer. And there's a softening that comes when we give up dominator culture. When we give up the mentality and methods of the empire. When we let go of, we should succeed. We should have the corner on truth. We have the answers. We don't need you, you just need us because we're the stewards of salvation. This is the restoration that can come with humility rather than the blind pride of the empire. But in verses 22 through 25, we see this 
this truth that the destruction and reformation of the temple demonstrates the mobility of God's presence. And if we could put that next slide up here. Um, the destruction and reformation of the temple then demonstrates to those of us who have been colonized by the mentality of the empire, it demonstrates to us the mobility of God's presence, that God just isn't in one place. Even as we were singing, I was like, there's some stuff in here that's real good. Um, but it shows us that God's presence is mobile. It can come out of the temple and move anywhere, just like when God was in a tent. The significance, though, of the temple, I don't want to undermine. Um, this was an intensely traumatic event for many who were in Jerusalem. It was the, the destruction of their society. But God is essentially saying, this experience, if you're courageous and follow me into exile, I'll be with you wherever you go. Though the temple is destroyed, Ezekiel can reframe the deepest truth about temple for us. Namely, as the psalmist says in Psalm uh, 24, verse 1, I believe, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Isaiah 66, that heaven, as God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. You could read up here. And of course, this verse from Psalm 139 as well. All of these bear witness to the truth that God is actually not even just in one tent. God is omnipresent. Psalm 139 is saying, no matter where I go, I find you. And this is the truth, that God's power is God's presence. The most powerful thing about God is not God's ability to force people to do things. It's God's love, God's ability to woo us even within our obstinance and free will. This means that God can be present even in the most trying times. The most desolate places. God isn't just present in the glory. God's present in the exile and in the wilderness. God isn't just present in answers. God's present in deconstruction. God's present in doubt. God's present in confusion. This pushes us. God's power isn't so much that God can protect us from pain as it is that God is present in the pain, even experiencing that pain with us. And so, I'm sorry, we have to talk about Jesus here. I know, I know we're supposed to be in the Old Testament. But we got to talk about Jesus. <laughs> because, just to tell the rest of the story, essentially what happens is when the exiles, when Ezekiel's prophecy comes true, that the exiles do return back to the land, these two folks, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, get this idea, and really it's a collective thing. It's not just Ezra and Nehemiah. I'm sure there was a lot of cultural momentum behind this. But they decide, let's rebuild the temple. Let's rebuild the city. Let's rebuild the walls. And I don't mean to say all of that is wrong, but they do go back to some former understanding of who God is. And what Jesus then does is 500 years later, shows up on the scene, and that same second temple is there. And what does Jesus say about the temple? That it's going to be destroyed too. He says, essentially, Ezekiel's prophecy is going to continue to keep going until y'all understand this thing. 
The temple will continue to fall until you understand that God's presence is God's power. So I want to tell a quick story about my daughter who's here in this midst. Uh, so she, she uh, a couple months ago, maybe three, four months ago, she started um, saying goodnight to this little carving of Jesus that I have. Uh, and it's actually from a time of one of my own, the closest thing I have to exile. I got this little face of Jesus from that experience in my life, and it's a carving, it's beautiful. Um, but it sits in this room that's almost like a storage room, and Zoe, every night, she says, night night Jesus, before bed. Every nap, she goes to say night night to Jesus. <laughs> and yesterday, I'm in this room, and I'm cleaning up the, this, this room a little bit, and Zoe, you know, pitter-patter, walks on in, 22 months, and, and she, uh, she goes, Dada, clean Jesus' room? And I want to say that that mentality is okay for a 22-month-old. Dada cleaned Jesus' room. That's a good theology for a 22-month-old. Okay? But so often, this is what we adults think religion is. Just clean up the church. Just fix all the bad behaviors. Just get the right people in and get them doing the right things and Jesus is going to come back. This is an elementary understanding, even an infantile understanding of God. And we need to begin to locate God's presence in the far off places too. Because that's precisely what Jesus demonstrated in his ministry and what Ezekiel is prophesying in our text today. And this functions the way of the religious elite in Jesus' time, not the way of Jesus. This is about simply drawing the bounded set lines of who's in and who's out. Jesus doesn't do this. He says, you're a woman, follow me. You're not the race of my dominant culture, Syrophoenician, Canaanite woman. Teach my disciples, is what that text is about. Crux students, you know that. You've had five husbands. Share the good news. You're a woman caught in the midst of adultery, but they didn't bring the man forward. Teach the Pharisees who are not only ready to cast you out of their community, but they're ready to kill you. You're a prisoner who has been labeled, racially profiled and labeled a cr criminal. Go save seminary students. That's my own story. You're an undocumented immigrant. Tell my church that la frontera es una mentira. You're an unhoused member of the open arms community. Feed this church. Help them understand real hunger. You're a biracial queer person, an indigenous person, a Chicagoan who's lived through not just studied gentrification. Help new community understand wilderness. It is my belief that the temple is being destroyed again. It will continue to be destroyed until we get this. And there's, I don't mean to minimize uh, or, or just overly extrapolate this, but I want to share with us some statistics that have come out over the pandemic that are actually very relevant. Um, they're not the only signs, and I don't think this would be enough <laughs> um, to, to show us that the temple is falling, the temple in our time is falling. But in July 2020, the Barna Group announced that 
One in three Christians in the United States dropped out of church completely between March and May of 2020. Then the next slide. In March 2021, Gallup data recorded that church membership in the United States dropped below 50% for the first time since they had been recording data, which was in the 1940s. So that's when they started recording. And never, never has it been below 50%. Then this year, 2022, two studies have reported dramatic results. First, the Institute for Family Studies and the American Family Survey suggests that religious attendance as a whole has declined significantly in the past two years. Amongst those who reported that they attended church one to two times per month, as you can see, there was a 6% decline from 34% to 28%. And amongst those who reported that they never or seldom attended church, there was a 7% increase from 50% to 57%. The second study that came out in this last in this year is that the Pew Research Forum announced that the United States Christian population has been declining steadily in the past decade. Today, 63% of Americans describe themselves as Christians, down from 75% just a decade ago. And if you look back to 2007 here, um, You'll see that, that we've really been steadily, de steadily declining since then. Even this other bar here of no religion is steadily going up. The church has left the building. The spirit is in the wilderness. The glory has left the temple. And these are heavy things. I want to channel us a little bit now towards some application. Because what do we do in light of all this? How do we respond to this kind of a heavy word? The first thing I want to encourage us towards um, is this idea that we should get saved over and over again. Okay, and I ask, uh, well, I'll say this. I think we should stay in exile until we're as healed as we possibly can be of the empire. <laughs> We should stay in exile as long as we can until we're healed of the empire. And I asked Cece before if I could share this, so thank you, brother. But Cece, when I first met him, we were in a membership meeting together here at Newcom. And Cece shared with me that when he heard the way that I was talking, he was talking to someone else, and he said this. He said, that guy, he's saved. Okay, and I just want to tell you today, no, I'm not I'm about this mentality that we're continually getting saved, right? That I need to get saved over and over again. And it, uh, it actually goes back to some history. Augustine, and then a millennium later, the reformers in the 1500s, they said things like this. And then, and then uh, even this last century, Karl Barth, they all have ideas around this idea of uh, sempre reformanda, which means essentially always reforming. We don't arrive. And in Crux, with my students, we, we put it this way. We say, always forming, never formed. Always forming, never fully formed. That helps, I think, for me. Um, we need to not rule out the possibility that we may need another form of exile wilderness to heal us of some future exile ideas that might creep in. Or, sorry, future empire ideas that might creep in. The second application point I want to give us is that we need to start apologizing to non-Christians. 
and to those that we've sinned against. We need to also then listen to them and learn from them. Sung Chan Ra, again, along with some other Christian leaders, May Elise Cannon, Lisa Sharon Harper, Troy Jackson, uh, they wrote this book called Forgive Us, Confessions of a Compromised Faith. And each chapter is dedicated to a specific people group that the church has collectively and individually harmed. They confess sins against women. They confess sins against the LGBTQ community, sins against indigenous people, sins against Africans, African Americans and people of color, sins against immigrants, sins against Jews and Muslims. They even confess some sins against God's creation. We need to admit the harm that we've done and repent. When we're formed by those who understand the wilderness and exile that has been forced upon them by the empire, we end up swept into this beautiful experience of mutual transformation with them. And here I'm going to share a little bit about what it might look like to be formed by those who really understand wilderness. So this past Friday, uh, I got to go with uh, my students on what we call a Friday food crawl. And essentially, we, we crawl our way, we eat our way through a bunch of neighborhoods in Chicago. It's a really cool idea, and it actually helps it be kind of fun to learn some history. <laughs> um, but essentially, what we do is we, we hop on the L a little bit, we um, drive, we walk, and we meet with community leaders from Greektown, from near Westside, from Garfield Park, from Austin. And we learn from them about their community. We began to be tra transformed by the actual stories from the people who know what gentrification is, who have lived through it, rather than just studying about it in class. It's a totally different posture to take. One is the scientist. The other is the relationship, the, the, the partner, the one who comes alongside. I offer that as maybe a potential illustration for us. And that brings us to the third application point, which is essentially that we, Newcom, need to examine ourselves. How are we, unintentionally or unknowingly, complicit in the harm of empire? And I want to note that this is a collective, again. I, I, uh, I don't want to overlay personalize this because I want to starve us of the hyper-individualism that has infected Christianity on behalf of the empire. We need to examine ourselves. We need to do this collective work. We need to stop victim-blaming. So easy, it's just so easy to say that conservatives are the problem, Liberals are the problem. The compromises the church has made in its doctrine and theology are the problem. Social justice warriors are the problem. All of that, I just believe, y'all, the things we say as the self-proclaimed people of God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a big sigh. So we need to examine ourselves and make the changes necessary in this time and place to follow God's spirit, even into exile. A man named G.K. Chesterton, who's a Catholic theologian, he, um, he was asked, what's wrong with the world from your perspective? And his response was, we are. We are what's wrong with the world. 
But this is actually, I want to end with an illustration um, of, of our life group. Um, and I hope this is okay. My folks who are from life group, <laughs> I'm going to talk about us. <laughs> but um, we're pretty messy right now, y'all. We're in the midst of a mess. It's hard to figure out who we are. All of us have really been given a version of the gospel that was, as a man named Altizone writes about, partial at best. And I think all of us are hungry for a whole gospel. And so that desire has led us into a wilderness. The desire for a, a gospel that doesn't stop at any people group. As Luke says, it's good news of great joy for all the people. But our current leaders, Howe and Mia, who are wonderful, they've been leading us in multiple conversations over the past few months to start thinking about who we really are. And we've had to get into the mess. We've had to walk through the dense underbrush, exploring the nooks and the crannies of our identity. And to be honest, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what we're doing. And frankly, it feels like wilderness. But I believe this disorienting process of letting go of all the trappings of religion all the stuff that God doesn't need in order to have a home, we're headed into the wilderness to discover that maybe God is there too. And we're doing that collectively. So today we have an opportunity as new community to go to a congregational meeting. And whether you're a member or not, I deeply believe it's a way of applying, especially this third point of examining ourselves. I think it's a, a way of Bringing your voice, bringing your experience. I'm just one person, right? We've got a ton of experience in this room. And so we have an opportunity to share some of that. Who are we? What is God's spirit doing? The wilderness of exile will lead us, will heal us of our empire. The empire that has infected us. And the way that that comes is through the destruction of the temple our former way of conceiving of all things. The way forward for the vast majority of us here, whose version of faith has been colonized, the way forward is exile. It's wilderness. We need to embrace a faith that's always forming, never formed. We need to apologize and learn from those we've harmed. And we need to examine ourselves collectively. Jonathan Brooks, who pastors in Lawndale, puts it this way. He says, we used to live in catacombs in fear of the lions. Now we live in lavish homes in fear of the violence. We used to live in catacombs in fear of the lions. Now we live in lavish homes in fear of the violence. The wilderness is a place where we no longer are forced to bear witness to ourselves, as Michko Bonkai again says. So who are we, really? Who will we choose to be? Will we hold on to the ways of the empire? Will we defend the temple that God has left along with the exiles? Or will we go with them and with God into the wilderness of the exile and be healed? Amen. God uses the exile to make us, to form us, to shape us. Thank you, brother. Thank you.
Would you stand on your feet with us as we sing this song of response?